Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Thanks for listening to That's Truth on this Tuesday evening. We are glad you've taken time out of your busy schedule. You may be at home, you may be in your vehicle, you may be at work, you may be listening on headphones. We are glad that you are joining us. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your home this evening. You say, I have a question, but I don't want it ever connected back to me. I don't want people to really think that I had this question. I don't want people to realize that I'm having this struggle in my relationship or at my church or in my marriage or with my children. When you send your question in, just put anonymous, and when the call screener sends the question to me on my computer screen, it won't say message from Antigua, it won't say message from the Caribbean, it will just be listener asks this question. No matter how you are interacting with us tonight, maybe it's not a question, maybe it is a topic that you have been hearing discussed, you think should be discussed. And you would like us to consider discussing it here on That's Truth. Please share that with us. Again, I've said it many, many times, but I'll say it again. We want this program to be as effective and practical as possible. And the best way to do that is to discuss the things that are being discussed at your workplace, on your bus transport, and also in your home. We would covet you sharing a perspective your perspective and a topic you'd like us to discuss. Pastor, a question that I have for you here. What exactly is soul sleep? And I know in the past you had covered this to some degree, but I know we have many new listeners. What is soul sleep and why do some people believe in it? How does the Bible refute this teaching? Well, basically soul sleep is the belief or the dogma that upon death, uh, the soul um, goes into a state of total unconsciousness. Um, this is not a new system of belief. Uh, as far back as the 16th century, the Socinians and the Anabaptists held to this, this view. Today, of course, the two main groups that hold to this view are the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witness. The Seventh-day Adventist position is far much stronger than the JW position because they believe that when a person dies, um, they go into a complete state of non-existence and there's nothing that survives death as far as their belief is concerned. 
part of the reason why they argue for soul sleep is because the Bible uh, repeatedly, t- frequently talks about death asleep. And so they think that uh, when you sleep, you're unconscious. And therefore, they apply that to the fact that uh, when a person dies, he goes into a state of unconsciousness. For example, Stephen, um, chapter Acts chapter 7, verse 60, uh, talks about Stephen falling asleep. Could you read that for me, please? Acts chapter 7, 7 verse 60. Verse 60, a long chapter. Let me just scroll down here to verse number 60. It says, And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, Lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Yeah, and then um, we don't have to read all of these, but in Acts, 16, Acts 13, uh, 36, when Paul is referring to David, he said, uh, David fell asleep. Uh, that's found in Acts uh, thirteen thirty six. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid onto his father's and saw corruption. So those terms uh, that Stephen fell asleep and um, David fell asleep. And then in Paul's writings in Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, 18, 20, and 51, four different times uses the figure expression that uh, of sleep, speaking of death of sleep. And then in Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 15, he also describes death of sleep in three different occasions in those verses. Um, and then Jesus himself, when he was dealing with Lazarus in, in John chapter 11, verse 11 and verse 14, uh, he said that Lazarus slept. So because of the association of the biblical language using the word sleep, and sleep to us uh, generally means unconsciousness, those that hold to this belief in soul sleep um, apply that to, to death, human death, and say that the, the person is not conscious after uh, after death. But in, in every case where that word sleep is used in relation to death, it's not talking about the sleep of the individual soul or spirit. It's actually talking about the, the, the sleep of the body, the body at rest and sleep. So that's one of the main reasons why people have uh, believed in, in soul sleep, because of the, the term uh, sleep applied, applied to death. But there's a second reason. And that has to do with the person or the, the, the denomination view of the nature of man what we might call uh, biblical anthropology. And those that hold to soul sleep uh, maintain that man is a unitary entity and not doesn't have any component parts. So that they would say that the body and the soul are synonymous. There's no distinction between the body and the soul. So when the Bible speaks of the body, it also refers to the soul. So that because they don't make any distinction as to the nature of man, that they are component parts, and that man is a unitary, uh, unitary entity, they hold to that view. Uh, and so if man, if the body and the soul are the same, it means then that when the body dies, it's the same as the soul dies. So it has not only to do with the actual word sleep, but it has to do with the interpretation as to, to, as to the nature of man. So those are the two main reasons why people hold to this soul sleep. But what is our biblical response to that? Well, there are several things. One is, there are several passages, biblical passages in the Bible, that refer to the conscious existence of man after death. Uh, one of the classic examples of that is Luke chapter 23, verse 43. If you would just read that for me, just please. Luke 23, verse 43. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, 
today thou will be with me in paradise. Now it's very, very clear that if our Lord made that statement, he either didn't know what he was saying, he was either ignorant of what death is about, or we take that verse as a valid affirmation that a person dying on the cross and the young man dying on the cross as well, Jesus is saying to me that my body will be here, but you will be with me in paradise. So who, who's going to be with him? It's not the body. The body was buried. Uh, Christ's body was buried, but yet he said, you will be with me today in paradise. So clearly, uh, it is more, a human b- being is more than just a body. There has to be a me uh, going to paradise with me, which would be the immaterial part. The other thing is, uh, uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 31. Uh, you, you know the story of Lazarus and um, the rich man and, and Lazarus. And our Lord gave us some insight into what happens after death. Uh, and in that passage, it is very, very clear that the rich man uh, was lost. He was conscious. He could see Lazarus. He could speak. He could feel. He could hear. He could smell. And he can feel pain. So, it's not just that his body was asleep. That now, if you call it a parable, I don't dispute if people want to call it a parable. What is a parable? Not it is teaching something. It is teaching that there are one or two places people go at death, and that there's a conscious state after death. You can't deny that that is within that that, that kind of teaching. So the Bible indicates uh, both there in Luke chapter sixteen and Luke chapter twenty three that there's a conscious existence after. After death, the other th- thing that I find interesting, Nathan, is that if it is true that soul sleep means that the person goes out of existence and there's no um, spirit, there's no soul, how do you explain then Matthew seventeen two and Mark nine two when Moses and Elijah appeared to Christ and they discuss his demise or his death? Uh, they certainly were conscious. And the fact that they were conscious of the, his death that was coming, they had information. Uh, and, and that would show clearly as well that there is a conscious existence after death. Otherwise, how do you explain that if you're going to non-existence and you wait to the resurrection? Uh, that is what they teach, that n- nothing uh, exists after death. You just cease to exist, and then you will exist at the resurrection. But here is uh, Elijah and Moses, no resurrection but yet they're consciously talking to the Lord about his death, uh, as, as, as indicated by the Mount of Trans. So that's one of, one of the arguments that we would use, that the Bible indicates there's a conscious existence of the individual after death in those three passages. Um, the second thing we would say, Nathan, is that when persons die in the Scriptures, they always speak of giving up their spirit to God. Uh, look at um, Luke. Well, look at Stephen first. Stephen, uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 59. Acts chapter 7 and verse 59 says, And they stoned Stephen, calling up God, upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So here's his body stoned. He's stoned to death. But Stephen is saying, Lord, receive my spirit. Receive my immaterial part. So the, 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 it cannot be that the body is the same as the spirit because that makes nonsense of what Stephen is saying. Also in uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 46, when our Lord died on the cross, uh, Luke 23, verse um, 26, 46, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. Again, it it, it makes a distinction between his body, 
which was crucified and was buried in the grave, and his spirit which went uh, to be with the Father. So we would argue uh, that the Bible indicates that people who die, uh, the spirit leaves the body and goes to be with the Lord. There's another thing that uh, helps us to differentiate uh, the fact that the, the body and the soul is not the same. The Bible makes a clear distinction, Nathan, between the body and the soul. Look at Matthew ten twenty. Matthew ten twenty says, For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaks. Is Matthew ten twenty? Yes, Matthew chapter ten and verse twenty. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, for it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speak in you. Now the reference I wanted is um I'm not too sure what, if it's Matthew twenty or Matthew twenty ten or whatever, but it has to do with the fact which says, Fear not him who can kill the body but cannot kill mm-hmm. the soul. Clearly, the body and the soul are two distinct entities, uh, but rather fear him who can both destroy the body and the soul in hell. That's found in Matthew. Um, I, I thought I had the correct reference. But um, that makes it clear that there's a distinction between the body and the soul, and the body is not the soul. Another fascinating verse is James 2.26 that makes the same distinction. James 2.26. 2.26 reads as follows, For as the body without the spirit is dead... So faith without works is dead also. Again, James is making a distinction between the material part of man, which is the body, and the immaterial part, which is the spirit. And he's saying when the spirit is out of the body, the body is dead. So clearly the body and the spirit cannot be the same. So it it defeats the argument of those who say that man is a unitary being uh, that has no distinctive parts or dimensions to man, the the Bible makes it clear that there is a body and there is a spirit. But there's something else the Bible does, and not only makes it distinct that there's a a spirit and a body, it goes even farther to to make a distinct between within the immaterial part. There's not only a body, but there's a body, a spirit, and a soul. Look at um, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it makes a, a tripartite nature of human beings, that is body, his soul, and his spirit. I want to preserve your body, I want to preserve your soul, I want to prepare So certainly the immaterial part of man, there are two parts to that. There's a soul and there's a spirit. And then Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 is another verse that indicates there's a division within the immaterial part of humankind uh, between the soul and the spirit. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Again, it makes a distinction between the soul and the spirit. And the, the final argument, which is the fifth argument we would use against uh, to support our view that soul sleep is not biblical, is that the Apostle Paul in Philippians one twenty to 23 Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 and tw- to 23. One of my favorite passages. Uh, first chapter of Philippians. Philippians one twenty says, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. 
For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I what not. Verse 23. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. I mean, that is very, very clear. Here's the ambivalent that Paul has. He wants to remain with them and minister to them, but at the same time, he has this very strong desire that, you know, he's an old man now in his 60s. I guess he's a little bit weary of the, not of the, in the work, but, uh, and he now is saying, you know, I, I have this feel. I want to leave, but yet I feel I need to remain. And he notices he wants to depart and to be with the Lord. So clearly, uh, Paul cannot be wrong that when he uh, died or when he went, that he would go to be with the Lord. The Apostle Paul is teaching very clearly that he will go to. And then the other one is Second Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 1 to 10. It's a very long passage, but if we just read part of it there. maybe Second Corinthians 5, uh-huh. verse 1 to 10. Uh-huh. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Verse 3 says, If so, be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that morality, mortality might be swallowed up of life. Verse 5. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are also always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Verse 9. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Yeah, the point is there that absent from the body is present with the Lord. Twice Paul indicates there that um, when the believer uh, leaves the body, he goes to be with the Lord. So I think the preponderance of evidence, when you look at these um, five indicators, uh, prove conclusively that the idea of soul sleep is not biblically supported and uh, the evidence weighs heavily in favor that there's a conscious existence after death and that the believer uh, goes to be with the Lord uh, at death. So we need to put to rest any any idea that um, death means an unconscious existence and a person somehow ceases to exist and will only be resurrected and become conscious again at the resurrection. The biblical teaching is contrary to that. And I think the biblical examples we got, the Pauline teaching on that, Paul's desire, our Lord's uh, own teaching, all of them, uh, in favor of the fact that there's a conscious existence after physical death. I know you have referenced in previous episodes, Pastor, the importance of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. I'm going to put you in the hot seat here. Is the what you're saying, the biblical view of soul sleep and the uh, that we have a soul and that we live eternally, is that a fundamental of the faith? 
Well, it has never been um, held within fundamental circles that that is a fundamental. Remember, the fundamentals basically is the inspiration of the Bible, the um, the virgin birth of Christ, his death atonement, his resurrection, uh, his coming again, death. Uh, heaven, heaven and hell, etc. Um, the deity of Christ, uh, the Trinity, basically. Those are the f- basic fundamentals. But this has never been held as a fundamental doctrine that a person is lost if he believes this. Uh, this is a matter of interpretation. And it, as far as I am concerned, it is incredible how somebody can hold that position when the Bible speaks so clearly mm-hmm. uh, on this matter. I think within our if our our circles, within our um, independent Baptist circles, and certainly within the Baptist movement, I think it would be hard to associate with somebody who doesn't believe, uh, who believes that the person goes uh, so sleep. I think it would be very difficult for us, having been so grounded in Scripture. But it has never been held as a tenet that um, decides a person's relationship or fellowship with other uh, other churches. I've never seen that in any fundamental book that this was a, a major, major, major doctrine. Uh, remember the people who believe that, um, believe that man is going to be resurrected. It's not as though they're saying that man goes into oblivion and he'll never live again. There's something completely different now. Uh, but a lot of these as well, including the, the Jehovah's Witness and the Seventh-day Adventists, they do not believe in eternal punishment. Now, that's where we will differ with them again, and that now leads us to a fundamental issue, because if you don't believe in hell, uh, that is a major cardinal doctrine that we believe in. You can't believe in an eternal hell, heaven and not believe in eternal hell. So that would now push it in the, in the realm where um, those that believe in soul sleep believe that you'll be resurrected, and then eventually you will be... You might go through punishment, but it's not an eternal punishment in the sense that you don't suffer eternally. It's eternal in the sense that you're punished, and then you go out of complete existence. That is where we would differ on them, and that would be a fundamental issue, because the doctrine of hell and heaven has always been considered fundamental to Christian beliefs. A question that has just come in. Pastor, you reference hell. What does hell look like, and what does heaven look like? Well, that's another... A whole discussion in itself because we can we can take the words of Christ and he's the one that spoke more about hell than any other New Testament writer. As a matter of fact, Christ spoke more about hell than he ever spoke about love. You, if you read uh, the Gospels, and you can find me three or two instances where Christ talked about love, uh, you, you would surprise me. Um, he spoke more about hell because that was his purpose in coming. Flee the wrath to come. Um, his message really was there's a hell to shun and need to escape. And he himself described it as where the fire is not quenched, where the worm dieth not. These are words that come from our Lord's own, own mouth himself. He described it as eternal everlasting torment. He also described it as a place of darkness, etc., etc. So if you want to do a study on that, you just would have to take the, the words of Christ and uh, let him speak to the issue. But he spoke more about this matter than any other subject when it comes to... Um, he spoke more than about heaven. He talk, spoke more about hell than he talked about heaven, more about uh, hell than he talked about love. Because man is in critical danger, and the message is you need to flee the wrath to come. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul in his writings talk about eternal wrath. John in the, in the book of Revelations say that she be tormented unto the ages of the ages. Um, so clearly, and it's interesting that before chapter 20 of Revelation, the beast 
and the false prophet and the devil are thrown into the, the lake of fire before the, 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 the millennial kingdom begins. After the millennial kingdom, a thousand years, uh, and the, the, the devil is going to be cast into the lake of fire finally, it is said where the false prophet and the, and the false teachers are. So they're still there even after a thousand years. If that's not a clear indication that this is an eternal duration of punishment, I don't know what is. But that's the biblical teaching. Now, people find it offensive because uh, certainly I could not conceive of I doing something like that. I must be honest with you. But I keep reminding people that I do not know what it is to be holy in the sense that I am in totally impeccable. I do not know what it is to be uh, create beings and they rebel against me. Uh, I haven't got the faintest idea what that means. But whatever happens, God is just, and God gives us an opportunity, and God deals with us on the basis of choice. And He warns us. Now, whether we understand the full repercussions of what He tells us is immaterial, but there's enough in the Gospels to say to us, there is something to fear and to dread this God if we don't repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the other thing is this. I don't know what it is to have an eternal son that I've never been separated with him uh, in all eternity. Then on the cross, when he takes all our sins, in that moment, he cries out, My God, my God. What? That's a mystery that cannot be plummeted by the human mind. So there are a lot of things we can't fully comprehend uh, about God. But this is much this this much is clear. The Bible is exceedingly clear on this matter that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And anyone that is reading the Bible with an open mind, uh, and just take the Bible on its clear teaching, will come to the conclusion that it's an inescapable fact that there's a heaven and there's a hell. However you want to interpret that, um, that's up to you. But I can only declare to you what the Bible teaches on this matter. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And the sinner will discover in that day that toying with God and dilly-dallying with God and messing with God and trifling with God uh, has eternal consequences that men will regret through all eternity. This is the time now for men to get their hearts right with God, to repent, to put their faith and trust in Christ, and accept God's way of salvation. He, listen, if there is no hell, I cannot conceive of why would God have sent his son to die on the cross if there was no hell. This thing is so serious that God gave his utmost best, his total love in a package, to bring about redemption for us. And we dare not slight what God has done for us, and we dare not slight the death of His Son and the price that He paid to redeem us. Um, I think we're toying with the wrong person, and uh, we have no right to inject our own ideas and look at things from a human perspective. We must find out what God has said in His Word, because God has revealed to us uh, these truths. Pastor, we have Brother Williams on the air. Brother Williams, thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, sir. How are you? I'm um, doing okay. Dr. Murphy, yes, sir. Two, two verses I want to do explain to me. Deuteronomy uh, 22 5 uh, and read. Habakkuk 2 15 16. 16. All right, I will read those. Do you want to stay on the line, or do you want to... Li- I will listen up here. Thank okay, you okay, okay. All right, thank you very much for the call, Brother Williams. Appreciate it. And let me read these verses and have Pastor give a perspective. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5 says, 
The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Well, let me respond to that quite clearly, because I think last time we we kind of uh, dealt with that one. But that's a clear indication that God drew a clear demarcation uh, this the idea of being unisex and men looking like women and women looking like women, men dressing like women and women. This is clearly a, a contrary to the biblical principle to maintain a strong line between the sexes, and it is and that's where the transgenderism that we are now currently experiencing. That's a Bible verse that becomes a principle that we stand on, that we against this kind of thing because here God is condemning any attempt for a man to look like a woman, a woman to look like a man. God made the sexes, and God wants that line of distinction to remain uh, so that people can see that distinction. And when we obliterate that line that God has established, we're rebelling against God, and we're creating confusion that God never intended that confusion to be. And he's given us that principle that a woman should dress, uh, that she's recognized as a woman, and a man as recognized as a man. We should not have this cross-dressing and stuff like that. This is not God's intention. And Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, and maketh him drunk also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Verse 16. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. Yeah. Well, I think that's very plain that wherever you find uh, alcoholic drink and stuff like that, it always leads to some kind of nudity or some kind of sexual uh, act being done. And in this particular passage, it's talking about a person using alcohol and taking advantage of a person. I don't know if you know this, but I remember when I was uh, a boy, there was a gentleman who used to use, um, he had a a boat, and he would take uh, tourists out in the boat uh, to do skiing, and he was very, very clever. Uh, he would entertain them and get them drunk and would sleep with them. I knew that as a fact. He would sleep with you. They didn't know what had happened until the next morning they got up, but by then they couldn't do anything because he couldn't go to the police and say, he could say it was consensual. What are you going to do about that? So it's very, very common uh, that people would get people inebriated. Carnival, for example. There are a lot of women, a lot of men that during carnival, they drink very heavily. And of course, what happens, the highest pregnancy rate in the Caribbean is after carnival. Where do you think that happens? Because there's a, there's a relationship, a correlation between alcoholic beverage and promiscuity and immorality. And this is what God is warning about. Uh, and it's all people using a strong drink alcohol to get people um, inebriated so that they're not very conscious of what they're doing and take advantage of them to abuse them very sexually and expose themselves, etc., etc. So that's what he's condemning. And I think that it's very realistic that this happens even today. You'd be surprised how many women and how many men have done things and don't even know they're drunk. Drugs is another one. You get a guy high on drugs, whether it be cocaine or crack or marijuana, you'd be surprised what kind of activities are engaging when that thing, because you don't have any control of your control center any longer. That is gone. 
And of course, uh, I don't have to tell you that sex and drugs and sex and alcohol, uh, two of them go together. Um, you just have to visit the bars and visit around. You'll see exactly what. And if you've had any experience, you know that people employ this again and again. So that's what he's condemning in Habakkuk, uh, of using alcoholic beverage to get a person in a state where you can see his nakedness or expose himself and in certain cases engage in sexual activity with him without even knowing and being conscious and God warns is going to bring shame uh, upon a person. Brother Williams, thank you for the call and for those questions about two verses, well, I should say three verses that are extremely practical in today's day and age, especially as we go into carnival season here over the next six weeks here in Antigua, or less than six weeks. There's a question that has just come in. Good evening, Pastor. My question is, how do people who have never heard the truth get an opportunity to go to heaven? I know there are some tribes out there that believe in false gods. They were taught to believe in them since birth, and they don't have technology or missionaries to witness to them. In that case, how can they get saved if they don't know the truth? How would they would they go to hell either way? Well, let me give you a story, <clears throat> a story along that same line. I was in, uh, I think, St. Croix a few years ago for a conference on weekend meetings. I forgot which one. <clears throat> And I had to get my glasses changed. And I went to this um, guy that does glasses, et cetera, et cetera. And he's, a, he's an Indian. And um, we got to talking. And I pushed the, the question of, was he saved? Was he a Christian, et cetera, et cetera. And he, he told me he wasn't a Christian. And uh, the problem he had was this. How can uh, God send people to hell who didn't hear the gospel? And how come that the gospel is in the, the, most of the western parts of the world, but in India, where you've got almost 1.4 billion people, uh, there's so many people in India that didn't hear the gospel. And I said to him, are you really, really concerned about the condition of the Indian people? He said, yes. I said, you'll be a missionary. If you mm-hmm. feel that the, the, the problem is that they can't, nobody's carrying the gospel there, why don't you carry the gospel to them? But you see, he had his lucrative employment, his career. And, uh, and, but that's the, the biblical answer to this, to this question is this. God has commissioned all believers within all churches that they've been given a mandate to carry the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world to reach every creature with the gospel, every born, every person with the gospel. That's the church's responsibility. Uh, and uh, the church has not been very faithful in discharging that responsibility because it's gotten sidetracked with entertainment, with worship, with all kinds of fancy activities, building monstrosities for buildings and ornate structures, and uh, they have this thing and the next thing, and it goes from one thing to the other. But the primary task of uh, missions and evangelism is where there's the greatest deficiency. And we are going to be held accountable for those people who are lost. You remember what... Um, Ezekiel was told, Son of man, if I say to you, go to the wicked and tell the wicked you shall surely die. If that wicked man hears what you say and remain in his wickedness, he is responsible for his own destiny and you will not have to pay the price. But if I say to the wicked, and you don't carry the message, that man's blood will be on your shoulder. We are going to be held accountable for those people who don't have the gospel. So to answer the question, uh, God um, is chosen to use human instruments. 
save believers to carry the glad tidings. The problem is not God or the mandate God has given to us. The problem is man's reluctance to make whatever sacrifice is required to carry the gospel. We have become um, settled down here, and we are more concerned about quality of life. We're more concerned of attaining certain um, toys, uh, adult toys, and we have forgotten what our mission is all about. And we must remember this. We only got three score in 10 years. If by reason of grace we might live to be 80, but all of us substantially, uh, very few people, maybe 1% or 2% might go to be 80 years old. But generally speaking, all of us are going to die between 72 and 75. And that's the time we have to do the job. And that's what God has put that burden upon us, but we have missed the boat in my judgment on that matter. Consequently, um, there are many tribes still and many nations still and many people still uh, who still have not had the gospel. But I wish I could give you this, the figure, uh, and I'll probably give it to you next time. You will be surprised that there are thousands of missionaries all over the world carrying the gospel. I saw the figure one time. I was staggered. I didn't know there were so many. So it might seem as though um, the church has been negligent, but I'm saying to you, there are thousands of of people on the mission field. I don't mean 5,000 or 10,000. I mean thousands, more than that, who are carrying the gospel, who take this responsibility seriously. And I hope that the you who have sent in this um, question, I hope you take your responsibility serious. You may be worried about the guy in the far-off land, but what about your neighbor? Does your neighbor know the gospel because you've shared the gospel? What about your schoolmate? Does your schoolmate know the gospel because you shared the gospel? Mm-hmm. What about your neighborhood? Do they, what about the people in Antigua? You can't have a burden for people in Africa or people in India or people in the Alaska if you don't have a burden for your own people. So I would say to you, let at least uh, the Antiguan public be able to get the gospel so that no Antiguan will ever face God and without being able to say, uh, I didn't know the gospel, I didn't hear the gospel. You take the responsibility seriously, and if you love your people, uh, let's make sure that you also fulfill your responsibility in carrying the gospel to them. And then also ask yourself the question, Lord, what would you have me to do? I don't know what your career is. I don't know what you're doing. But if you have a tremendous burden for the loss, have you ever put yourself on the altar and say, God, if you call me, if you show me what I'm supposed to do, uh, I'm willing to go. I'm saying to you, the answer to that question is to be answered by you and answered by me and other people who have that burden. And uh, so I just hope that uh, I understand your concern. But again, <clears throat> you can be part of the solution like I can be part of the solution and have a, a graver sense of responsibility in carrying the gospel. One of the other things is this. If you're going to a church, have you ever asked your pastor or your church, what are your missionaries? Do you support missionaries in, in the world? Who are our missionaries? Does your church have missionaries that carry the gospel? If they don't have, start there at your church. Get your church with a burden to reach the loss and to support missionaries. And if it starts there, maybe you'll start a little candle, a little fire that might um, um, conflagrate the whole of Antigua. But start somewhere. Don't just have this concern without doing something. You do your part and see that your church does its part in carrying the gospel to the loss. And to assist you with that, 
We have bags of free tracks that you can come collect here at the Radio Lighthouse Studio in Valley Church, Antigua, during regular business hours between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. on weekdays. Just ring the doorbell, let us know that you would like some gospel tracks, and we will give you a bag. Uh, If you're familiar with the program, Bible Tract Echoes, that airs twice throughout the day, each weekday here on the Radio Lighthouse. They sent us a pallet with 100,000 tracks. Put that in perspective, that's enough tracks for every individual in Antigua to hear the gospel. And so we have those in bags, and we are here to offer them to you free of charge and to assist you in spreading the gospel. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.12, and you're listening to That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 11.60 a.m., 92.3 FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. For this program, we are also on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, And on your device, in the comment section of that video feed, you can comment your question or a suggested topic or your word of encouragement, and we'll pass that along to Pastor Murphy. You can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782. One four five four. I'm going to give those to you again. WhatsApp or text two six eight seven eight two one four five four. And to be put live on the air after speaking with the call screener, call two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. If you've just tuned in and you're saying this sounds like a great idea, I'd like to ask my question. But I've heard talk radio before, and I know that there are hosts out there who, when I call in to ask a question or a listener calls in to ask a question, they are raked over the coals, they are mocked, they are ridiculed, they are there just for the entertainment of others. That is not the case here. We are here to hear your question, and Pastor will answer your question question from a biblical world view. We have a question that has come in. Pastor, you referenced that at the cross or after the cross, Jesus the Father, Jesus the Son was separated from the Father. But there was a verse that was read earlier in the program where it said, where Jesus said unto the fellow being crucified beside him, Today you will be with me in paradise. How do you reconcile those well, two? I don't see any disparity between the two. Um, the problem is how 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 uh, when that separation took place. Uh, we believe in the moment that our sins were placed on Him and He died for our sins. In that moment, Father turned His back on His Son. That's what He's got. My, my God, my God, will forsake me. And I believe that happened because an absolute holy God, when His Son has embraced all the sins of the world. Remember that Christ didn't die for my sin and your sin and just a few people's sin. The entire body of sin that was ever committed or would ever commit in, 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 the, in the total universe, He paid that price for that sin. What that means, we will never comprehend in its fullness until we get into eternity. What does it mean to take all our sins and pay the price for that sin? I, I, I can't fathom that 
uh, my finite mind can't wrap my, my mind around it. But uh, at that moment, it seems that when the father saw that, uh, that led to the, you know, turning his back on his son, as it were, because the sin, he just couldn't look at all of the sin. That's the mystery that we can't totally fathom. So, <clears throat> but I don't think it's a, dis- a disparity between, the, in that moment, when our sins, for that split moment, the father uh, separated from his son and, and uh, turned, turned uh, couldn't look on his son, and the son said, why have you forsaken me? Uh, because remember, he was always in the bosom of the father from eternity. This is the first time, I remember while he was on earth, he said, you know, everything I say, I say because my father says it. I don't tell you anything that my father does. There was such an intimate relationship between him and his father. But in that moment at the cross, that intimacy was broken. How long that lasted, we don't know. But clearly there was a separation between him and his father at that moment. And that, uh, imagine that God's eternal, his son is eternal. What does a moment of separation look like to an eternal God? Is that an eternity in itself? Mm. That is where we can't get our heads wrapped around it. But I don't see any distinction between that, that moment of separation, uh, and the fact that he's going to be with the Father the same day. There's no, there's no, I don't see a disparity there when you understand the mystery of what the Bible is talking about. Thank you for <clears throat> each and every question that has been sent in tonight. We are awaiting your question. You can call and ask it by calling 268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question. Again, just put anonymous at the beginning of it if you want it to remain anonymous. WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Or you can send your question via Facebook and we will pass it along to Pastor Murphy. Yeah, uh, I would like to share with the, the audience, the, the listener be ta- uh, who sent in the question before. I did an exercise some time ago, and I would challenge you to do an ex- do this exercise. I can't remember this, uh, how, what it worked out to. But if you, took, if, if you started off tomorrow with, say, uh, 30 genuine Christians, 30 genuine Christians, who decided that within a year, they're going to win one person to the Lord. By the end of that year, that would be 60. If you get a commitment from that 60, that by the next year, they're going to win one person to the Lord, you've doubled that now to 120. I think I did that exercise in Antigua, and I think it was within 16 years, mm-hmm. every single person in Antigua would be reached with the gospel. So it's not an impossible task. It's not impossible to ask. What has happened is that after we get saved, we're very zealous for the Lord. We want people to save. But over a period of time, we lose our zeal. and We're now saved, and we just seem to not have the same passion we had before. But if you do that exercise, maybe start off with 2,000 Christians, and uh, they're leading one person, Lord, and then that... 4,000 winning uh, one to uh, 8,000 and do that. You'll see that it's not an impossible task to be done. It's just that the church has failed. It's not God's problem that the church has failed. It's our responsibility to take the commandments of God seriously. But apparently we haven't. As a result of that, we have a condition where... um, the Western world is pretty much saturated with the gospel, but other parts of the world still need to be reached with the gospel. That's the problem we have. And it happens that in the, in the, in the Western world, we become comfortable. We are more concerned about our security and our comfort and our happiness than we are about carrying the gospel. That's the problem. And um, you'll find people today, for example, who want to be missionaries to America. 
but they don't want to be missionaries to Iran or, or Sudan or some other place where it's difficult, right? So the problem is not with the Lord, it's not with the methodology that he has chosen for us to do because our job is to reach people with the gospel and share the gospel. That's our job. Whether they get saved or not, that is God's job. He's the one that gives the increase. All he wants us is to get the message to people and uh, let him, the Holy Spirit, take the word and do the work of conversion and regeneration. And I think if the church would do that, uh, we would have fulfilled the Great Commission. I have a comment from a listener in Dominica saying, just wanted to let you know that I am tuned in all the way from Dominica. No matter where you're listening from, thanks for joining us on That's Truth tonight. And I hope you can keep your radio dial tuned to CRL for the next 40 minutes. A comment that has come in from a listener in the northern, eastern, northeast Caribbean. People have to be more loving and caring for one another. If they say they're Christian, they're not supposed to slander one another. The preacher needs to talk about this and about forgiveness. And maybe that's a good uh, suggested topic for a future episode, possibly. Okay. Pastor, a question that I know is practical to many of us. What, or I and many listeners, what advice would you have for a Christian couple who is contemplating marriage? What items should they consider before they say, I do? Well, I think in light of the crisis that we're in when it comes to marriage, um, it is sensible for anybody contemplating marriage and before they commit themselves to making vows um, that they um, try to work on matters that would almost guarantee the success of the marriage uh, because if you go into a marriage and you're not ready for marriage, the chances are it's not going to be successful. And I think we are very much aware that even today it's about 50-50% chance. And I'm also told that within the first two years of your marriage, it's the roughest time of your marriage. And if you don't survive in the first two years of the marriage, quite frankly, um, it's, it's not going to happen. The average time now is about seven years uh, where people get divorced within about seven years after marriage. That's wow. about the average right now. It used to be much further than that, but now it's about seven years. So seven years. And the other thing is that when people go into a second marriage, the, the success rate of the second marriage is far worse than the first marriage. It's 50% first marriage, 66% second marriage. So if the idea is that you'll be more successful in the second marriage than the first, no, chances are you'll be less successful if you go into a second marriage. Uh, and I think that people um, need to understand that going into marriage is more than falling in love with dimples or maybe Douglas here, or a person's uh, shape, or jump into bed, have sex, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people think that's what marriage is about. Sex cannot maintain a marriage. A marriage cannot survive on sex. People need to understand that. A lot more to, to marriage than sex, but people get the idea because it's, it's such a big thing. Uh, and then uh, and they think that that's what it's all about. And then they discover in marriage that that's not, that's not the biggest thing in marriage. But let me make some advice to people who, uh, if you're thinking about marriage, the first thing I would say, say to you is to seek some godly counsel on this matter. Marriage is a very big deal, and if you want to start off this journey of marriage to be successful, it has multifaceted dimensions that married people and counselors who have dealt with marriage people uh, and marriage should be giving some very, very, very good advice and 
counselling is an investment that will almost help to guarantee the success of your marriage. And this is one thing I would recommend. I, 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 I can't see why anybody in these days would go into a marriage without having some kind of godly counsel. You are doomed for failure if you don't get some kind of pre-engagement or premarital counsel. And I'm not asking you, I'm telling you it's, 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 it's where the situation is. Uh, the, the level of commitment uh, that people have today is, is not like it used to be. People got married and to them it was permanently sealed. They would be able to uh, go through rough times and difficult. That's not the mindset today. Is that God sent me here to be happy. So I want to be happy. And not put up with anything that don't make me happy. So that is why you're having a, a very long, very short terminal point for marriage, and the expiry date is so 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 um, uh, so small and so low. The number is so low. What it, would you say to the listener who says, Pastor, I'm getting married soon, and I just don't think I need to get that counsel because, Pastor, we love each other. You just don't understand how much we love each other, and we'll be able to work things out when they come up. My, my, my God, simple answer to that. I do not know of anybody who doesn't marry because they love the person. Okay, so the idea that love is the key to marriage. But yet those people who claim to love each other within seven years— They've gone. Imagine broken up. So, what makes you think that it's going to be different? Because you think you love more than that person loved before. Uh, I think you're you've got a very um, arrogant concept of yourself and the kind of love, the quality of love that you have. Um, you should be wise enough when you see if you are going to buy a vehicle and you discover that fifty percent of the Accord handle cars were going bad after seven years. What you think twice? Yeah. What you want to investigate more to find out what is happening? Well, I think it should be the same in marriage. You should be able to say well, what what's gone wrong in the marriage, and the people who have done counselling, who could point out these um, potholes you're going to have in your marriage. What you need to look at before you get, because if you're not ready for these things to come, when you come suddenly upon them, you may not be able to survive. Uh, when you drop into this this difficult situation and how to pull yourself out and how to gain advice and counsel deal with it. So I think it is an essential. As a matter of fact, if you look at Proverbs 1, 5. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse number 5 says, A wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. I mean, that is so clear. I mean, if you want to be, if a, a wise person, seeing what is happening around today, uh, the wisest thing would be, I, I need counsel, I need, and, and then look at Proverbs fifteen twenty two. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse number 22 says, Without counsel, purposes are disappointed. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Again, I don't need to elaborate on that. That is self-explanatory, that the, the wisdom uh, is to be found in, in, in counseling. So that's the first thing I would recommend if a person is really serious about wanting their marriage to be successful. There is not a, it's not a choice these days. It's a mandate that you get good, solid, premarital and pre-engagement counseling. That, that, that's, a, that's something that's required if you're going to be... So. The other thing is, uh, try to assess your readiness for marriage. And what I mean by that is, is the, you are the person emotionally ready for marriage. And what I mean by that is, that does that person have a secure identity of who they are? 
or, or they aren't have a lot, a lot of self-doubt and they haven't built up their character so that they are totally dependent on somebody else to, to prop up their image of themselves or their self-concept. Do they have a healthy uh, e- emotional personality? What about mentally? Uh, can they problem solve? Can you reason with them, or this? You know, every time you get into some, it's very, very clear this person's um, brain is in neutral, and they can't look at something objectively. And uh, every time something is brought, it's as though they attack you, or you're attacking them. When in actual fact, you want to discuss a matter, and you get ideas. So, are they mentally mature? The other thing is um, assess your financial readiness for marriage. Um, the biggest problem in marriage, the, the that people argue more about than any other subject is money. And if you're going to go into a marriage and you know that's a reality, why don't you sit down and discuss this thing about your financial situation? Because I find people, for example, who, who uh, they get married and they don't decide and we can have a joint account. They don't discuss that. Uh, okay, if we have a joint account, do we have some kind of a, uh, independent spending without having to consult the other person. You know, am I a little boy that every time I want something, I must come to you and say, "Hunt, can I spend $20? You know? So, you, you, you know, those are things you should do. Who manages the funding? Who manages the money? All of those are things that need to be discussed. So, are you financially ready uh, for this matter? And then, of course, spiritually. Uh, can you discuss spiritual things together? Can you pray together? Can you read the Bible together? Uh, are you going to the same church of the like denomination, share the same faith, the same belief system? Uh, so you have to assess your readiness and look at those four dimensions, the emotional, the mental, the financial, and the spiritual. Number three would be take an honest look at your goals and dreams and expectations. Look at it in the short term, the medium term, and the long term. But have an idea of what your your partner's dream is. What does he want to accomplish? What do you expect out of the marriage? What does he expect out of the marriage? Those are things that you need to try to get settled before you go into uh, a relationship, then to discover that, well, I didn't know this was your dream. I didn't know this was your ambition. I didn't know this was what your expectation uh, or your expectation. I, I had no ideas of your goals. What if your partner don't have any goals? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, he's content or she's content to remain the same way for the next 70 years, the next 40 years, if it lasts that long, but no ambition to move beyond um, improve in any area. Uh, how how would that... And imagine you're a very ambitious person now. And let's suppose it's a, a situation where the wife is ambitious, but the man is not ambitious. Who's going to lead? Hmm. You're looking for serious trouble in the future. So you've got to discuss... Number four is, what is your communication style? Um, with your your partner, um, when you making decisions, um, what how how do you ma- have you made any decisions together? Discussed anything together? Uh, can you talk? Can you communicate without fighting each other? Can you talk at a level where you can share things without the other person think you're trying to undermine their credibility or undermine their value? Or, or this person so insecure that any issue you're dealing with, they think you're attacking them. Well, do you think that's going to change when you get into marriage? So you've got to discuss the matter of um, communication. And then uh, do you listen to each other? Are you arguing a lot now? You're dating? Everything is an argument? I pity you when you get married hmm. because nothing is going to change. It's just going to get worse if you're in that argument mode. 
And um, has the person during a conflict been able to forgive? Or do you find this person just can't forgive? Well, my dear friend, if you're going to live in a, with a person seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and then, for, for seven, and then 365 days, they're going to see so many things in you. And if they can't forgive now that you're just seeing each other periodically and something happened, they find it hard to let go and hold in the grudge, what do you think is going to happen when you get married? See, All of these things, so the communication needs to be, to be, uh, to be looked at. Um, and then the other thing I have mentioned before in a previous program has to do with um, uh, the idea of what's your primary love language of your partner, your primary love language, okay? You need to know your primary love language of your partner. And I mentioned in the previous program that Dr. Gary Chapman has done a wonderful job looking at 21 years of counseling and then reviewing his documents to find out exactly what uh, make people feel love. And he came up with these five love languages. One has to do with uh, words of affirmation. Uh, that may be a partner. The other one has to do with sometimes touch and affection, uh, small gifts, and uh, quality time together. And the other one he mentioned is doing tasks and helping the other person. So, But you have to find out what is the uh, primary love language. Number four is... Um, how do you spend your social and your leisure time now that you're dating? Uh, do you have good, clean fun together? Do you have common interests, even common friends? Do you go to games together? Do you play uh, games together? Do you go to the beach? Do you walk? Do you go to the park? Uh, do you go sightseeing? How do you spend your social time together and your leisure time? Because I'm suggesting to you that as you get married, uh, that's not going to change. So if you're not able to walk in the park, you're not able to go sightseeing, you're not able to play games together and go to the beach together, no, uh, it's probably not going to happen afterwards. And if that is important to you, you have to look at that aspect of it. Uh, your social and your uh, leisure and recreational life. Number six, what's the job and career goals of your partner? Um, whose career path shall take precedence? That may be something, is, are you going to help him to finish his college first and let him get into a job? Are you going to finish your, your college first? Whatever it is, if you're getting married before you and I said, I had no idea of the impact this could have had. But when I think about it, you know, here you are married, you've got a mortgage. Uh, you're not paying for the last, what, th three years or four years, source of income. You've got your family to, to meet their needs. I mean, that is enough stress to make a person do something drastic if they don't have any faith in Christ and any f uh, support system around them. But, but along those lines, w is it, would you discourage couples from working in the same industry, in the same place of employment? I'll tell you one thing I, I think is a bad combination, a police and a nurse. When he's going out, she's coming in. When she's coming in, he's going out. That is not a good combination of jobs at all because she is 24 hours on call he generally speaking about 24 hours on call as well that's a very bad combination so I think that people should look at that uh, and career 
I don't know, Nathan, to say that you're going to the same area. The problem is if the downturn in between that and you're all in the same thing, yeah. everything collapses. It may be better to have two different situations. You're hardly going to find two fall at the same time. So it might be best to do some. But a lot ha- has to do with your gifts, your talents, and your yeah, ability, that's true. and your skills as far as that is concerned. Um, but I think that's important. Uh, the other thing is moving. Uh, there are some careers that will cause you to move, like if you're a diplomat. Um, do you like travel? Um, if the person is going, you have to look at those kind of things. Um, I remember years ago, I thought, I think I told you on the radio, I thought I was going to go into evangelism. It would be the worst decision I ever made because I don't like travel. I despise traveling I, 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 <laughs> with a, a, a hatred. I do it only because I have to do it, but it, it brings me no pleasure. It's a burden for me to travel, right? So my wife has often told me, Dave, you know, you always said that you would. I said, "Hun, uh, my wife will travel at the drop of a pin. She loves to travel. I'm the very opposite. But I think that is something that people need to look at uh, and so on. So you have to, and the family schedule, balancing work and, and home life, et cetera. That is something you guys should be, should be discussing. Number seven, um, I, I just mentioned this just a moment ago, but I, I think the, the matter of uh, dealing, the whole matter of setting the finances, of managing that part of it, I think that is very, very, very crucial. Uh, and I feel that if they do have a joint account, I feel there should be uh, freedom and liberty that you agreed on, that I can speak and spend, either of us can spend this amount without having to necessarily tell the other. I, I'm telling you, I'm dealing with situations, Nathan, that even for a wife to spend twenty dollars, she got to go to the husband. Hmm. It is so demeaning. I can't believe it is possible that that could still be happening. Right? No, they have a joint account, but they didn't figure out. Uh, they didn't say, you know, well, even though we have a joint account, I, we should have some freedom. You know, what if she want to buy a gift for a hundred dollars for him? I don't want him to know. Hmm. <laughs> See the dilemma. So I think that even if you have a joint account, you should mutually agree that. Uh, you can spend and I can spend this without having to consult with each other. Set a limit. If it's $100, $150, whatever it is. But it's very demeaning. Every time I want to spend something, I got to come back to you to just spend $20 or $50. I just think that that is uh, too tight for a meaningful, independent relationship to be sustained with the people. So I think it's important. Um, Number eight, um, Look at family dynamics. And what I mean by that, uh, look at the relationship between your in-laws. Discuss family traditions. What if your family love everybody to come at Christmas, but you're not that person, you want to be at home with your family? That if you were brought up in a home where it went at Christmas, we have this big thing together. You just can't ignore that when you're going into marriage because that is part of family tradition or to get together at Thanksgiving or something. So I think uh, when you're dealing with family dynamics, you need to get to know about the other family and if there are any uh, family traditions, uh, any cultural nuances that are common to that family, I think that's very important. And then set some boundaries uh, as to 
to what extent can in-laws get involved in our issues. If you don't do that, the in-laws can start controlling the marriage and the many marriages that are destroyed because of in-law problems. It is good, but it can also be bad. So you've got to set some kind of limits uh, on that matter. Number nine, uh, what's your child-rearing philosophy uh, and um, what about birth control? That is something you need to discuss. Spacing of children. Uh, how many children do you want? How many children does she want? Uh, um, who is expected to do the discipline in the home? Uh, those are things that, that need to be discussed. If you're looking at your marriage being successful, you need to be looking at that. And then are there any blended features to the family? In other words, is this marriage between uh, two people that don't have any children? Or... Are you going to have ready-made children? Are you going to emerge? You marry somebody who has children. You talk about trouble. That is tremendous trouble. You have to discuss, and especially the age of the child, because when a child reaches a certain age, um, they begin to realize that, you know, you're not my father. And they'll pretty much let you know that you're not my father. You have no right to discipline me. So when it comes to that issue and you're still going into a relationship, you might have to decide that the, the other person who is the natural parent of the child is the one that handles the discipline because that can cause tremendous rebellion. But you can't ignore those blended issues that are involved in blended families and just go into the marriage thinking it's going to work. Uh, it, it doesn't work that way. You're, you're, you're living in a dream world. There are problems that you have to be discussing on a, uh, to, to solve these kind of problems. Got a comment that has come in in relation to this from a listener in the Caribbean. You have to have confidence and trust one another when you want to get married. You have to make up your mind to understand one another. Counseling is one thing, but you have to have trust in one another. I don't think counseling is much help. Well, I, I disagree with you on that one. Uh, I think uh, I don't think anybody goes into marriage who don't believe there's trust. They'd be very silly to go into a marriage that there's trust. I can't think of a person marrying anybody where they don't trust the person. So, and I agree with you that trust is important. Transparency is also important when it comes to marriage. But I think you're making a grave mistake. Uh, to having such a low opinion of uh, counseling. Maybe you, the counseling that you have gotten or the other person, maybe it's, 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 it's really is nothing of any substance. But uh, a person who is going to uh, do marriage counseling with you or with any person, um, he has to cover several uh, topics uh, that are essential when it comes to, to marriage. Uh, I would, he has to talk about communication, uh, he has to talk about finances. He has to talk about intimacy. He has to deal with in-laws. He has to do with roles. What are your roles in, in the thing? And he has to do with uh, problem solving and, and um, conflict management. How you're going to deal with that? And of course, he has to give you a, a solid biblical concept of what biblical marriage is all about. Those are just the basics. Uh, and any marriage counselor doesn't include those things. It's not counseling. It's just talking. But these are issues that need to be dealt with. Uh, and, and, and by the way, <clears throat> when you do these areas, you assign 
um, for the following week. If you're dealing with communication, for example, and you give the principles of communication, uh, you 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 sign for that week that they use these principles um, in their relationship and you find out exactly how, how it went. When it comes to conflict management and you give them uh, some guidelines to deal with, you, you t- find out what problem they had this week. How did they utilize that particular methodology to help resolve the problem? Is it working? Is it feasible? Is it practical? Is it applicable to them? All of those things that need to be. So it's not just a matter of talking. The, the counseling is also followed with assignments that take what you've been counseled on and put that into 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 play so that the person can see if you're actually learning and adapting and absorbing and appropriating what is being taught. As so, you were responding to that, my mind went back to the verses you shared from Proverbs that clearly state uh, a wise man seeks counsel and listens to counsel. Yeah. I, I'm not discounting the person's emphasis on trust, though, because I do mm. feel you can't have a successful marriage without trust. But, uh, again, uh, trust doesn't tell you how to handle finances. Trust doesn't tell you how to communicate. Trust doesn't tell you how to have in, in, uh, what level of intimacy you have. Trust doesn't tell you how many children you're going to have, how you're going to space your children out. Trust doesn't tell you about uh, the financial finance of the home. Um, so trust is important, but there are other things that are equally important as that. Uh, and then the other one, Nathan, is household responsibilities. Um, and, and I would say this. You mean that's not just the woman's job? No, no. I, I think this is a big mistake that Caribbean people have made. Uh, I also discovered that um, in Africa, I've spoken to the young lady who comes to our church. Um, you know, in Africa, the woman does everything, basically. The man doesn't help in the housework at all. It's like demeaning to him to do that. Now, when you have a wife working and a husband working and they're doing eight-hour job, both of them are working eight hours, to my mind, it's unconscionable that she would come home, have to do the cooking, do the washing, uh, do the cleaning, do the laundry, and the man just sits down and watch TV and belch. I mean, I, I, I can't conceive a man would have a conscience who doesn't understand that uh, he should assist his wife uh, if she's been working hard and, and to help her, uh, etc. But I do feel that the housework needs to be decided on, who carries out the garbage, who cleans the lawn, who does the mopping, who does the vacuuming, who does the washing the wares, et cetera, et cetera. I think the more you can settle on, on this and, and try to have division of labor among yourselves, I think that is very, very, very helpful. And then uh, number 11, um, physical attraction is something that is, is very important and, and, and should be maintained. I, 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 I just spoke to a couple that got married in our church on, sun, on Saturday, and I think they, I hope the message got across. But this is the reality. What made you fall in love with a person? There had to be something physically attractive about the person. You just don't marry a person who would look a stone. There's something there. So there's an attraction that you saw there. What people forget is that that attraction, you should try to maintain being attractive 
because that's what brought you, you, yourself together, that attraction. There's a physical attraction, so you need to maintain your attraction. I find that people, as they get married, they let go, look go. Uh, the wife doesn't care how she looks now. The man doesn't care how he looks. Like. I, I talked on Saturday about so many pregnant men I see in Antigua. Right? <laughs> 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 you know? I, I, I just can't understand that. Um, but that physical attraction, and it takes commitment to your partner to remain attractive to your partner and vice versa try to be attractive mm. but I do feel that that's important um, the other thing I think that needs to be looked at is um, issues that c- could affect the marriage as you get married for example does a person have a pornography problem that needs to be to be discussed because um, if you're going into a marriage where a person has a pornography problems, I am suggesting to you, you're going to have problems. Yeah. Serious, serious problems. Has that person uh, won the victory over this, this pornographic problem? Uh, but again, if you know that he's had a problem or she's had a problem, you need to put some things, checks and balances to make sure that he doesn't revert to that. I think that's what, has there been sexual abuse? Uh, in, in either the male or the female, I think it's important that that is shared with your partner before you, because I cannot tell you uh, how marriages sometimes get broken up uh, because the after period of time, this person gets all kind of flashbacks. And when their husband touched them in certain areas, they just withdraw themselves and can't function. That a lot of time it's a result of being abused and uh, your partner needs to know about that and if you've gotten over that and um, he needs to be uh, gentle and he also needs to be thoughtful about this matter and, and um, you, you know you can be able to share these kind of things when these things are happening I think that's I- important um, the other thing I get married that you have some medical tests I think you should see if there are any STDs uh, we're living in the age where people are turbocharged. Sex is as common as the sand on the sea today. And um, hardly, hardly do people uh, come to the altar except they've had some sexual encounter. Very, 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 very rare. And I think it's important. Also, I would suggest you to look at blood types. I don't know what it is, Nathan. I was trying to remember. My, my, I have a sister that could only have, she had one child and couldn't have another child again. She had to have something done. But it had to do with her blood type. And I think that there are people who know what this medical thing is about. But I think it's important to know if your blood types match. And then the other thing I think is I'd be concerned about, and people might think this is crazy, but um, sickle cell. If you are carrying... Um, you're a carrier. A carrier and a partner's carrying, you're going to have full-blown children with sickle cell. I think that is something that should be looked at and pondered seriously. Do I want my child to go through this this, this misery? Uh, you might love the person, but again, you're not only going to be thinking about yourselves, you're going to be thinking about your offspring. How is that going to affect your offspring? Uh, and then... The other thing I think is important, Nathan, is the, uh, having a common faith and sharing um, a, a common church. I think that's important. It's difficult for you to be going to one church and your partner going to another church. It creates a lot of problems for children. Whose faith do we follow? 
And it's better to marry somebody within your own faith or within a denomination or within a similar denomination. But it'd be very, very difficult for an evangelical uh, to marry a person who belongs to one of these established churches, whether it be a Catholic or, or Anglican. It's very, very difficult because the belief system is so different. And you want harmony and unity within the relationship. And so forth. you try to uh, avoid this disparity between the two. That, that is the... Um, I'm going to give you 13 things that I uh, would suggest that people would look at. There are others, of course, but uh, I think those are some of the main ones I would suggest that people consider before they jump into marriage. It takes a lot to make a marriage work. Yeah, and lots of good advice, and if you want to hear that again, you can listen to the rebroadcast of this episode on Saturday afternoon from 3.30 until 5 p.m. this week on Saturday. And you can also go to the That's Truth podcast and download this episode later this week after we podcast it. And you can listen to it at your own convenience as many times as you want. And what's great is you can share it with others. Maybe you have a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker who is getting ready to go into marriage, especially those who claim to be born-again believers. A very good advice and counsel. Question that has come in. Is it sin alone that Jesus died for? In the Bible, God repented that he made man. So when he came to die for our sins, was it because he repented that he made us? Um, what the Bible teaches, I could only tell what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that Christ came uh, to die for the sins of the human race. Um, God repenting means God uh, had a change of mind. Uh, had to do with the fact that it, 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 his choice of man and giving man the, the capacity to, to act out of, as a moral being to make choices, um, that turned out that man went the wrong wrong way. And God being holy, uh, you can understand why he would make that kind of statement. Uh, but that was a risk that God took uh, that in creating uh, beings like himself, made in his own image, they had to be moral, relational, uh, intellectual, emotional, uh, volitional creatures. And that was a risk that God was willing to, to take because as a result of uh, Christ's coming, he's now able to bring um, those who put their faith and trust in Christ to a higher realm uh, of humanity, it's not just that we can be like we were when Adam made us, but of a higher level, we have the same nature of uh, we become like the Lord Jesus Christ. God apparently thought it was risk uh, worth taking the risk uh, because, in the long term view, he saw the benefits of elevating man to a much higher level than man was in the Garden of Eden. Uh, but the the Bible is very very clear that Christ came to settle the whole sin problem and to put man in a right standing with God and a right relationship with God. That is why he came today. There's a comment in relation to what you've been talking about, about marriage. I'm curious to get your input on it. Many Christian couples fail at marriage because individuals forget 
When they got married, they entered into a covenant relationship with God. Unfortunately, as time passes, individuals focus less on their spouse and more on themselves and allow others to enter into their marital space. I think that that is a fair assessment of the dilemma that we face ourselves in. As a matter of fact, one of the subjects that we would probably look at, uh, we may not have the time, is getting emotionally wrapped up with a third party and that will ex- will explain how that happens but sh- the person is, is very right about that that marriage is a covenant it's a covenant and a vow that you make between um, God and the couple makes between themselves and the, and the Lord and the focus of the marriage uh, is correct it should be on each other the partner uh, how can I make you the happiest person in the world how can I meet your needs and if the husband is asking that question, how can I make you happy? How can I make, and the wife is asking the, same, the husband the same question, how can I make you happy? How can I make your needs? And how can we serve the Lord together? You have a formula for success. You don't even have to go with the 13 things I just gave you. But the reality is that the persons go off in the workplace, and this is where the problem probably begins to have, begin to have problems at home. And infidelity, uh, the commonest place for infidelity is in the workplace. And so uh, when you are working with a person, you, you see your husband how many times a day? Your husband gets up in the morning. You don't see him until maybe in the evening, uh, 4.30. You are working for a person from 8 to 4 o'clock during the day. You have more contact with a person other than your husband. That is where the problem comes in. And sometimes you have people who are um, whose personality, whose skills, whose knowledge, um, they have assets that your husband doesn't have. If you weren't in the workplace, you wouldn't have a comparison. But now you're in the workplace, you have this comparison, and then you have this personal contact. And it doesn't take long before you begin to see so many faults in your husband and so much perfection in this other person. And that's where a lot of individuality starts. And so you don't focus now on your husband. You begin to focus on this outside Relationship, and I think the assessment you've given is, is is correct, and I think the answer is to really begin to f- each person to focus on each other, making each other happy, and stop looking at the grass on the other side and focus on the grass on this side. Make sure it's growing well and developing well and blossoming. That is the key in my judgment. Pastor, for a born again believer who marries a born again believer, is there hope? to keep a marriage alive? I, You know, my view on that matter, I, I haven't changed my matter on that matter. If a person is truly saved, both people are truly saved, I cannot conceive of a situation where if they are prepared to work together using biblical principles, where that marriage cannot not only survive but thrive. Uh, love can be rekindled. Uh, there's no qu- question about that. The flame of love can die down, but it can be rekindled. And there's a very, very simple uh, biblical formula that um, tells us very clearly how this can be done. And it's really that a lot has to do with our reaction and response to people. If we begin to respond to people the correct way and react to people the right way and treat them with dignity and love, this situation may be difficult, but after if you are consistently showing affection and love and concern and you are trying to respond in a way that is caring and loving, 
you break down whatever resistance is there. That's what the Lord said. Um, if your enemy hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, and you do what you build, cause a fire on his head. That's the way you break a person down. But it, it, it's not by words. It's not going to happen by words. It has to do with the, the actions of a person towards another that really can rekindle the flame that is dead. And if you find that in a marriage, if a husband begins to treat a wife correctly and shows her affection, that flame would come again. What about for the listener who says, I don't claim to be a Christian, but I want my marriage to be a success. What do you advise in the last 30 seconds? I would just say to you, be faithful to your wife, but I also would ask you to explore the possibility of putting your faith and trust in Christ and uh, asking your wife to join you in making that decision. You think that'll make a better, improve an individual's uh, life? Uh, yeah, I believe that. And uh, fulfill your duties at, at home, help the wife, care for the wife, show affection. I believe that that would help. But ultimately, uh, success uh, comes when you put your faith and trust in Christ and two of you serve the Lord together. That's the glue that binds people together. It's a unity, it's a oneness. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.